Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. This is Steve Walsh. Hello. And this, our guest, is Stephen Graham. Hello. Do we need to introduce Stephen every time? He's a musicologist, professor at Goldsmiths. I think it will become clear across the episode why we've got Stephen on. That's a lot of pressure to put on the man early on, but certainly is. thrives under pressure. You can follow us on Twitter at SLHC and Instagram SLHC. Uh, go to southlandhardcore.com for all of our episodes. Also, we do really need you to sign up for a free 30-day Amazon Prime trial using the link on southlandhardcore.com. Every time someone does it, we'll get £5 towards the show. Normally, we get about 5% of your Amazon purchases that you put through uh, the Southland Hardcore link. But, you know, if you could kind of, if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you could just sign up for an Amazon uh, Amazon Prime trial. You don't have to have it for the whole 30 days. Make sure you do cancel it before 30 days is up or keep it if you want. It would be a great help to us. It doesn't cost you anything. And as you say, you can sign up and just cancel it. Yeah, you can, or up. you can watch Mad Men, or The Deer Hunter, or Alpha Papa, or The Office, or Room 237. You can watch loads of great stuff for free. Anyway, on with the show. I'm sold. Sign up, Stephen. I will do. Southrunhardcore.com, click the Amazon link, and sign up for a free Amazon Prime trial. So, this week we've got another Southrun Hardcore playlist, Volume 5. Now, maybe when we get to the end of the show, we could come up with a name for it, Steve, rather than the South London Hoggle Playlist Volume 5. I quite like that. It's like now, isn't it? Mm. People in years to come will age themselves by the first time listening to a South London Playlist. My first was number seven, they'll say, in hushed tones. And now we're up to 54, and it's not as good as it used to be. <laughs> so all of these tracks are by South London artists or featuring South London artists. Uh, we'll go into detail as we go along. The opening track is Kate Bush, Running Up That Hill. My choice. I think we've um, not paid enough attention to Kate Bush on the show so far. She's a bit of a liminal figure in terms of stuff on Hardcore. She's born, I think, just outside of our catchment area, but certainly lives and grows up within our quite strict parameters. So she's born in Bexley Heath, Sidcup. No one's quite sure, but it looks sort of Kentish. But then goes to school in Woolwich and lives in Elton for a long time, including like when she's properly famous. Yeah, only moves out of Elton really in the nineties, I think. Where in Elton? I don't know. The there's some nice houses, man. Yeah, like with Elton, I mean, I wouldn't want to live there personally necessarily. It's a nice it's, place, though. <laughs> it's not like getting out of, say, I don't know, Woolworth or something like. Where there's nowhere, there's massive well, yeah, houses. Big, big yeah, place, it's huge. So, yeah. And like, you know, grand by Elton Palace. I mean, there's a palace for crying That's out true. Like. <laughs> yeah. There's huge houses there. Yeah, there are. Yeah, yeah. I just can't imagine Kate Bush living there. No, you can't imagine her living anywhere though, Stephen, can you? That's true. So then it was a case of what song to choose. And you're a bit spoiled for choice, I think, with Kate Bush singles. You had a, a real golden period, didn't she, where they're all think musically compelling and some cracking videos as well mm. but I went for running up that hill in the end because as a kid I remember this song so vividly and it had such an odd sound and I love it because it still sounds odd now when you listen to it it sounds very much of its time but doesn't seem like it's aged to me at all like I still think it sounds fresh it's one of those things personally 
That's because historical times collapsed in the past 30 years. Is that what it was? Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought that's what it was. I said to you the other day. So what happened? Well, let's, so we're going to listen to Man for Man later. Put them up against Pink Floyd. So there's eight, nine, ten years between them. This is an eternity. Put Tinker Taylor, 79, up against... Um, it's again, something from the 60s, a TV show from the 60s, like The Prisoner or something. Avengers. There's a wor- yeah, whatever. There's a world between those things. There's only 10, 15 years. Put, I don't know. This is my own Rock argument. Around the this clock is a widely um, Tomorrow Never Knows. Exactly. <laughs> excellent, excellent example. Purple Haze and... Um, <laughs> he's going to be all right, <laughs> You're ready. And My Old Man's a Dustman. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you see what I mean? There's a certain sense of historical... I don't use our progress, but uh, evolution or something. And then put um, put Duffy or Adele or Amy Winehouse or Arctic Monkeys up against things from 30 years previous to that. And the sense of difference between, like there's discrepancies between these ones and these ones, but they're only very minor discrepancies. Like listen to Betty Look on the Dance Floor. There's a really good nice story that a writer that I really like tells of, he saw that one night. And you know the video that's kind of stylized as kind of, old grey whistle test or something it's stylized as being from mm, that kind yeah, of era yeah, yeah. and he watched it and he did, hadn't heard of Arctic Monkeys and he genuinely thought it was an outtake from the whistle test in the late 70s early 80s he thought the line about from 1984 was a projection robots from 1984 <laughs> he genuinely thought it was a, a an original piece from that era um, and it kind of tells you a lot about uh, the kind of the kinds of styles and stuff that are accepted these days um, so that's what I mean by the collapse of historical time so the way you're saying that running up that hill it feels very contemporary. That's right, because a lot of music that gets released now feels like that, doesn't it? Because it's using the same kinds of technologies and uh, so on. So yeah, it's a very synthesized sound, isn't it? Yeah. Like the, the, the the sort of strobing sound mm. that goes throughout it isn't. You wouldn't sort of go, oh, that'll be. Uh... A piano. Yeah. It's, <laughs> that's a flute. It's just clearly a sound that's been made by a machine. Yeah. yeah. That's and unlike the, unlike the machines from the 70s, which have data, the analog sense and so on, we've moved into the kind of digital sense. And they've, in, I remember in a period in the 90s, you'll both remember this, and 80s music, kind of, this kind of falls into that camp, felt so ancient. Yes. And antiquated. Just thought, what is that stuff? Mm. Such a distinct tinniness to the to yeah. the kind of tone colours and stuff. But you hear it now and it feels like it's kind of done a weird reversal or one eighty or something and it's come back around. Yeah, and so you those look sounds back at, are um, Ocean Colour scene and they no longer sound like <laughs> Ocean Colour scene sound like the small fa- they sound like yeah. a late sixties. No, no, like <laughs> no, they they yeah, they yeah, they're they're a lost future of something, I don't know. A gratefully lost future. No, no. I love Me and Stephen both like Ocean Colour Scene. Oh, my God. They were brilliant. I numbered Nagant. More and more on Ocean Colour Scene later, maybe. Hopefully not. Um, I think part of what makes the song work as well is the fact that her vocals mm. are so... There's such a scope to them, isn't there? Such a range. And when people talk about range in music, sometimes it's very dull, isn't it? It's mm. just sort of like That's capability. Right. We'll get to that. Mm. Uh, it, it's just like you're able to do these things. Whereas with Kate Bush... There's an ambition with the voice yeah. to do things. And I think that melds so well with this alien-sounding music, mm. this alien-sounding voice. I absolutely love Kate Bush, and this is always one of my favourites. Uh, for similar kind of reasons, I was a bit, bit, sorry, a bit too young when it came out. <laughs> but soon after that, I remember hearing it and just being absolutely captivated by it. 
the the world of it, the video, the sounds. Yeah, the video is tremendous, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Wuthering Heights would, would always trump it a little bit yeah, for me. Yeah. But I thought Wuthering Heights was a bit too on the nose. I know, sort of I know, I know. Choose. But I like that it takes itself so seriously in that way, and it goes the whole way. It's a wonderful idea for a song as well, isn't yeah. it? It's sort of like this interesting narrative to it where she's like, I'll swap places with you to show mm. you that I'm fine. But you get the thing, there's also a bit of a trap there. Which yeah. like, I'll swap places and you can see just, just how fine I am and what that means. And in the video... It's her and a, 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 a guy wearing identical outfits, mm. these odd sort of asexual robes. And it's it's modern interpretive dance, which mm. is something that I have no affinity towards whatsoever. But it works so well in this mm. video. There's this wonderful sequence where their bodies are sort of melding into one another, which is clearly alluded to in the lyrics as well. But there's this, this particular sequence where they're sort of passing through each other's legs... And the camera cuts in a certain way that it seems like there's a loop going on mm. where they're, they're turning into one another, like the song talks about. And it's funny with those lyrics because I always read them as being very specific, like about some scene or idea from her life. But reading today, it's apparently about men and women. Yeah, it's yeah. just an idea of like trying to imagine mm. what another person's experience yeah. is of... You imagine you're going through the same thing, but yeah. obviously... I always thought it was about her marriage or something, or some couple she'd been a part of. MTV Weird. wouldn't show the video because she didn't lip, lip sync enough, apparently. Oh. They didn't like the idea that it was just dancing. Oh, she really? Like, not into that. Can you just pretend to be singing the song? Oh, yeah. And there are bits where she pretends to sing the song, but not enough not for enough. MTV. Track two is Manfred Mann, 54321. Early 60s kind of pop, rhythm and blues. Manfred Mann was a South African keyboardist who was in the band Manfred Mann. Um... And he lived in Arnside Street in Woolworth while they were huge, which is the South London connection for the band. Um, it was this period when Paul Jones was a singer. They had a load of lineup changes, and later on you got Manfred Mann's Earth Band. But it's at the height of their popularity. Mm. This is the Ready Steady Go theme tune, and then of all their kind of, I, I really like Manfred Mann. Like there's a hat they they released some amazing covers. Um, Mighty Quinn, Bob Dylan's Mighty Quinn. Uh, Do What Diddy and uh, If You Gotta Go Go Now Pretty Flamingo are kind of the big ones and uh, but 5 for 3 to 1 is like the kind of only original that I really really like to mm. but I'm guessing you guys are probably not taken with it are you? It sounds like a TV show theme tune from the 60s They nailed I mean? it they Yeah did, absolutely yeah. It, for, the, uh... for what it is for what it is it's perfect yeah. it's a brilliant TV show theme tune but like the idea of like sitting down to listen to this song do you know I mean, I've listened song? to it so many times. Really? Me and, yeah, me and Xavier do it. I say five, four, three, two, one, and then she goes da 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 da. da. But I think it's. Do you listen really to like, like the A Team theme tune? Because that's really good as well. Dun 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 dun. No, I listen to the other stuff though. Like their cover of Mighty Quinn. It's a different singer at that point. Did you know it? I was, I was actually watching it today because I thought, what? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Um, so go on, what don't you like about it, Stephen? I, I like a lot. I feel a lot of warmth for it, mainly because I already said he go. Um, Why was that? It's music, yeah? Yeah, it was kind of, well, I mean... I don't remember Ready said he go as a show. Well, I remember it no, not... Before, not before, yeah. Not, yeah. At the, not at the time. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> no, no, yeah, like 64 to 66. No, right. no, it was because it was when I was young and all those clips, you know, the Beatles and yeah, people are around them. Sort of, it's kind yeah. of got that uh, Soul Train vibe where yeah, the audience yeah, is right. there amongst the musicians. I just remember seeing them when I was younger and just thinking, what is that? And then I read an article a few years ago, a musicological article, um, in a book called Popular Music and Television in Britain. 
Um, you can find my review of that book in Music and the Moving Image. I can't remember the nut title again. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's an article about Ready, City, Go, and it was really, really interestingly connecting it to the birth of kind of subcultures and how it was presenting mod or producing mod for a kind of a public audience right. um, for the kind of social stage. And it was a really kind of important pivot for youth, youth, cult, youth culture. So it was, I mean, you probably know this, but like it was one of the first shows where the presenter was kind of amateurish in that way that's so familiar to us now. Um, it's probably <laughs> great on us a bit. <laughs> no, but you know that kind of... Yeah, um, like Chris Evans or exactly. anyone. Infusions Even like uh, David Letterman or yeah, whatever. Yeah, Kathy yeah. McGowan, and they kind of got her in as a... It wasn't a joke, I don't think, but I don't know if they had it by design that she was going to do, become the main presenter of the show, which she did. And her kind of fashion became really important as a kind of a, a linchpin of mods kind of fashion and so the whole kind of cultural aspect of it is really interesting to me of the show so I have kind of found associations with the song because of that I think but as a piece of music I don't really know was it um, in an advert Steve as well for a yeah, chocolate bottle 5432 was Snickers so, yeah. that was, was that Snickers before no there was, a, there was a uh, no uh, Marathon Snickers before Snickers 54321 is just the defunct chocolate bar that had no yeah, other guys I kind of so this is it's been in my mind for years and it's only fairly recently like last few years that I was like oh, I should look that up I didn't realise it was my favorite. and that's the thing like I again from my childhood I remember the adverts on TV mm. so I don't think of this as right, a song yeah. in the sense of yeah. oh, a leisure activity I think, think of it, it as, as a functional ped- music yeah peddling yeah. me a bit of chocolate right, nice yeah. chocolate <laughs> <laughs> I found another Manfred Mann South London connection it's Manfred Mann's own version of the story. The old harmonium has to go. It'll be sold if I can find a buyer. I reckon it's worth about eight pounds. Don't laugh. Eight pounds was quite a lot in 1964. But who will buy the damn thing? Where will I advertise it? Do I really want strangers wandering in my house then telling people, guess whose house I was in last week? Manfred Mann. House is an untidy mess. He's not as tall as he looks on TV. He was a right miserable bastard. He was asking eight quid for it. I told him, no thanks. He lives in a very ordinary house in Southbrook Road in Lee Green. He'd have thought he'd have been somewhere a bit better than that. One day the phone rings. It's, it is John Mayle, brackets blues musician, who lives down the road at number 17. Hi Manfred, would you consider selling your harmonium? Paul McCartney is here at the moment. He's looking for one. Alright. Also from that, yeah, Paul McCartney, but uh, John Mayle lives John Mayle lived on, on the same road in yeah. Lee Green. Wow. Yeah, okay John, we'll come around in a short while. I'm really excited. Paul McCartney, a real actual Beatle, is in person coming to our house. I am not cool. I'm a huge fan, just like everyone else. I wonder if he is as tall as he looks on television. Well, an hour or so later, the doorbell rings, and there at the door is John Mayle with Paul, who isn't quite as tall as he looks on television. I coolly po- show Paul my old harmonium. He seems interested and asks me how much. I do something really stupid. Normally it would be eight pounds, but I lose my moral compass. Here is the opportunity to make a killing. <laughs> Paul McCartney is a rich man. What's number four pound to him? Ha ha ha! I will take advantage. I will exploit the innocent bee who has wandered into my lair. I add 50% of the value and say £12. A whole £4 more. Paul doesn't take long to say no. The sale is off. Does Paul hang around and chat over a cup of tea? Do we swap funny stories about touring, the pressures of being famous? Do we bond and remain firm friends for years afterwards? No. Paul figures out I'm a miserable, greedy git who isn't as tall as he looks on TV and he and John leave as soon as they can decently get away. Had I sold, the Paul, the, had I sold Paul the harmonium at the correct price, what might have happened? We might have been phoning each other over the years, keeping in touch, discussing how the harmonium was getting on in his new home. Would our children become firm friends, laughing together in the warm glow of the old wood of the old harmonium? No. I probably sold it £5 at the end. At the time I thought how mean he was about money, how he so, so easily could have paid that and not even noticed. 
Later on, I realised that it was to his credit that he knew the value of mild harmonium and was not prepared to raid the wrong place or be taken advantage of by me. But it was only much later that I finally realised it was me who was mean, small-minded and a bloody fool. I should have asked the right price. I was wrong. Right. Nice. So there's a lot there. We know that he lived in Lee Green, mm. just like the road is John Mell, and he's been around Paul McCartney. I mean, at one point in Lee Green, you had Manfred Mann, Paul McCartney, and John Mell so brokering that, the sale of a harmonium off in the end. As that well. was, what did he say what year it was? 64. £64. So apparently he was living with Jane Asher, I think, at that point. Somewhere in London. Right, yeah, yeah, they would have been, yeah. yeah. North London. To check that out. Was it North London? Yeah, it would. None of the Beatles lived in South London. No, but yeah, really? Stella McCartney was born in, um, in King's College Hospital. Was she? Oh, really? And he came up with the name Wings, didn't he? Sitting in the hospital. It was like something about angels, and it was like Wings, the band the Beatles could have been. I think that's what he is. <laughs> <laughs> is that <laughs> Track three is Young MC with Buster Move from 1989. Born in Wimbledon, moved to Queens in New York, aged eight. And had this number seven billboard hit. And did he win the Grammy for best rap performance? Yeah, 1990, yeah. Only number 73 in the UK. I can't believe there was a best rap performance Grammy. In 1990? Yeah, because one of my class, we talk a lot about how the Grammys reflect um, music culture very slowly. And tried to manage music culture by... Yeah, but by 1990, it's undeniable. But that was one of the categories I thought that they were really slow to pick up on. Ah, whatever. Anyway. Sorry, wrong, weren't you? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, number seventy-three in the UK. That's oh, really? Seems... You just said that, Steve. Yeah, but it seems doesn't it seem preposterous? That does seem preposterous. Yeah, it's obviously not. Um, it's not. Like, I don't imagine there were piles of it in shops where there was just not backed by the record company. I mm. Yeah, they, I guess it didn't really. So I remember it for the time. I mean, I didn't buy it. I'm mm. part of the problem. I know. What do you think of it, Steve? I really like it. I'm a big fan. It's aged badly, isn't it? But it's, it's of the time, it's very much, you know, I, I've got such um, fond memories of this time where you had a whole vein of hip-hop that was just fun stories. Yeah. And that doesn't really exist anymore. And I think it's a bit of a shame. Well, I didn't so much pick up on the, the words, the narrative, as the kind of sound world of it. Yeah. And that's just as kind of dated. But it's also kind of, again, I think of it with fondness, that kind of very cheap drum loop. You know, it's so it shares that with so much of that music from yeah. that era, doesn't it? But I think if it's such a strong pop song, yeah, yeah, it's very strong. It's yeah. a very strong kind of um, composition to it, isn't it? In terms of the words, they really flow. Like. And there's some nice images in there about women and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and um, nice cameo on bass as well, isn't it? Who's that? Who's on bass? Flea from the Red Hot Chili no, Peppers. No, really? Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers plays bass and appears in the video. If you look at the video, there's ah. a bit where he's like topless, of course, because Flea has never owned a shirt in his life. Um, and he's standing on the bonnet of like a classic car or a truck and just um, just shaking his head madly and uh, oh, wow. playing bass. Oh, I watched a version with the lyrics up on the screen because I wanted to follow the lyrics. But, yeah. I think the lyrics are easy enough to follow, isn't it? He, yeah. like, he likes her. <laughs> But as I say, it's, it is one of those just fun things. It's just this yeah. very sort of simple narrative of, um, do you know what women like? They like dancing. It's a dance. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've got a lot, a lot of, of truth, truth to that. Track four, Asian Dub Foundation, Naxalite. Not one of my choices. Because I never imagined at any point that Asian Dub Foundation had any connection to South London. But apparently, Steve Trangisvall, 
um, better known as Chandra Sonic mm. from Asian Love Foundation, he was born in Camborne, like me. Right. Is he right. the main guy? Um, he's he's oh, the guitarist, he's not the mm. lead singer, but he's one of the sort of family members and important members, yeah. Apparently he used to play his guitar by tuning strings to one note and then uh, sawing it with a knife. Is that why they're so bad? Do you not like them? Nah. Unbelievable. No. Do you like them? Yeah, I do. I love this song. Yeah, yeah it's great. Really. I've only listened to a handful of songs that literally today, once each, but I was not, didn't enjoy them. See, again... This... So if you want to get them on the show, I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go deeper into See, the See, it's difficult for me because I remember this from the time yeah. and just loved it so much at the time. I mean, one of my questions for you, Steve, is I mm. think this song cheats. I think it's so good that it cheats. I think it's manipulative, but I don't know if, it, if that's cheating or just being good at being a song. Because I think for me, it's so undeniable. Like it controls you emotionally so well with the sort of builds and the breaks and the drops and the sort of crescendos that it reaches. But is that is that manipulative or is it just being a good song? I don't know. I don't know. Do you know what I mean by? What I, I know. I know. Yeah. It's a really interesting idea, but I don't know. The idea of emotional manipulation in art and it being somehow it's kind of the point, achieved. isn't it? Yeah, but exactly. How do you... Unless it leaves you somewhere down the line leaving you with, like, flaccid in some way or empty <laughs> feelings. So unless that's what it means by cheating, that you don't get the full experience somewhere down the line but you can't tell at the moment. Isn't it... It's used in particular techniques, though, isn't it? Like, you know, as I say, the, the sort of crescendos and then the build... No, no I get it, but if, if, you, if you get a cheap thrill from it, you're going to know immediately it's a cheap thrill. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So you're not necessarily being cheated of anything. You're only getting a cheap thrill. Whereas on what I'm doing at the end of the song is putting it on again. Yeah, that's a good a, sign, isn't it? Fine, yeah, right. It's so it's just a, it's just a good song. It's just achieving it, yeah. what it, it's it great. Yeah. To. I really like that. Yeah, I've been listening to a lot of Goldie, or not not quite Goldie, Goldie but not Goldie, i.e. Goldie but under <laughs> different pseudonyms. So Ruffy Crew and all those things. So really early Goldie. So that kind of jungle drum and bass feel, which has gotten the drums, the kind of subterranean connection to drum and bass, alongside the kind of, I guess dancehall dub kind of feel as well I really like that mix because from my memories at Asian Dove Foundation it isn't so propulsive yeah. so I saw them live a couple of times and I've always really liked them mainly for their kind of political sympathies because yeah. they always seem to be on the right side of things um, in a way that a lot of musicians aren't um, so I haven't I didn't remember them being so exciting so when I put this on today I thought oh my god I need to go back and get their album it's like that that's the thing for me that's the thing about it I think it is so energising yeah. to listen to yeah. and that's the thing about it I was like oh. and I was trying to you know I'm, I'm, I'm no musicologist and I was like why does this work so well and I was like trying to break it down and see what it was doing to me and how it was doing it and I was like and I think I think it is an irresistible blend of, of, of mm. types of sound as you say yeah. there's sort of like there's a it's a, a there's a jungle element to it and a dub element to it, but then a banger element to it, yeah, well, exactly, which is obviously yeah. what Asian dub foundation uh, bring into it. And it's, it, you know, I think I, I am um, a bit of a sucker for this kind of music, you know, yeah. uh, being a public enemy fan since like 1987. Mm. Once there's someone like Rage Against the Machine, uh, like it, it is this whole thing of like just hugely energetic, yeah. energized, charged. Yeah, they're really committed to it and they sell it, aren't they? Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. And it, uh, I think it's a fascinating way. Um, I was talking to someone about this the other day, about, like with Riot Girl, where mm. you have such an engaging form of music. And it's almost, again, it almost feels like it's cheating to be giving you so much lyrically and so yeah. much intellectually. Yeah. Like with the, the this song, um, you know, I had no idea about the Naxalite movement. It's basically a sort of a, a communist anti-establishment 
um, very radical militant movement yeah. in, in India. And there's a great quote from, um, I think it is translated, someone from Asian Dumb Foundation, and they were like, yeah, we're trying to de-gandify India. Indian politics. Yeah. We, you know, we're not pacifists. We believe in armed struggle yeah. to bring about change. And just because people look at us and go, I'll be your Asian, as if that means we're just yeah. instantly going to be pacifists. So they did this song, which is basically just all about, no, no, it's not even a case of, you know, not being passive, it's being active. Yeah. You know, you have to, be, you know, it's all about pouncing like tigers. They're yeah. just such, so, it's so sort of energised from start to finish. Yeah, what's not to like? It didn't sound good. <laughs> See, I, I, think, I think it's undeniable. That's the, the, yeah, the thing. And obviously, it, oh, exactly. Right. It, it clearly is deniable. If Maybe you, I'll uh, give it, a, I might have only listened to it once or twice. I, feel, well, I definitely didn't listen to it But once I, twice. I can sort of understand me being on the hook for it more than most because... Yeah, remember, I'm not a mad fan of Public Enemy, to be honest, either. Oh, right. really? Yeah. yeah. Rage Against the Machine? I like that one that got to number one recently, but I've not, listened to, I've not really listened to them to say... Yeah. To and that's another one where it's the build and the build yeah. and the build. And it, particularly if you are, you know... I, a lot of the, my memories of listening to these songs was, like, on the top floor at the venue. Oh, yeah. Where it's an incredibly tight space, and it's, like, 60 other people. Oh, we're all just, like, context. pogoing at the same time as you, and all just, like, slamming... And it's, like, so, sort of, mm. energised. So, as I say, I'm bringing a lot more to it, I think, in terms of um, having such fond memories mm. of it at the time. But I think it stands up incredibly. Oh, yeah. Track five... It's a hit from the Summer of Love, 1967. Procol Harum's Whiter Shade of Pale. One of the top 30 best-selling singers of all time, according to one thing I saw. Sounds about right. Recorded in South London at Olympic Studios, which we probably mentioned. In, every playlist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and every other episode. <laughs> and the Barnes episode, at least. But Steve, look, this is one of yours, isn't it? It is one of mine. But um, look, Addis- it's from Addiscombe. It's from Croydon, man. It's from Surrey, the guy. Croydon, yeah, Croydon, Surrey. Croydon, Croydon counts. We we count, we count Croydon, don't we? Yeah, you went to Sellers Grammar. That'd yeah, that'd be in South London. Yeah, is Croydon not in London? Well, nah. there's bits of it is, and bits, but our thing is, if there's like parts of it that are, and there are parts of Croydon that are, Addiscombe's not. But anyway, that's that's that. So what does that enough. mean for the idea of South London then? That we're including the, that you're including these songs. Well, it's it's similar to the Kate Bush thing where. Uh, he would have grown up playing yeah, exactly. massive primary school. He's on the edge, so he's yeah. obviously got big yeah, but were they, were they and it, this, was, this was when we were doing the tenuous playlist. So I was deliberately picking people that were liminal and a bit yeah. sort of... Were they pierced the by the South London spirit? Well, the thing is, my, my take on Croydon is I'm happy to adopt it because every time... Sorry, Croydon don't gets, want it, today. But every time Croydon gets mentioned on the news, it's Negative, Croydon, yeah, South yeah, London. Yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah, no, they want to no, place it with us, so let's embrace it. Let's not push away Croydon. Although... Ronnie Corbett was for he lived in Shirley Croydon, didn't he? Yeah, that's too far out, isn't it? Can't Shirley, do I don't know. Three five six goes there. Yeah. Goes. I mean, I'm I'm quite on the edge, aren't I? So you know, it's hard to yeah, say. You are on the edge. I mean, if it's a chance for us to do a Ronnie Corbett episode, then let's do it. Why a shade of pale? Yeah, heavily influenced by Bark, isn't it? Yeah, JS. Mm-hmm. Um, M G string. Matthew Fisher, that's the guy's name. Matthew Fisher's, yeah. yeah. He plays the Hammond organ on White Shade of Pale. Yeah. So say it's, we're giving him South London, that part's not the tenuous part, is it? Just no. to be clear. But it's not really tenuous, is it? Because that makes a song. Yeah, and that's it, what it, I wanted to choose it. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. His yeah. contribution. is yeah. massive. It's one of those scenes where, and again, having a musicologist on hand, I, for me it's hard to separate that from... I think the rest of the song is still very strong, lyrically mm. and in terms of the tune. 
but how integral is the organ? You can't separate it's, it's, it, can you? It's, it's not no. it's separate. It's inseparable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it does play with some with certain codes that, like you're saying, it feels really important to the song, and I think part of that is the associations that audiences, the slightly exoticized idea of it, of this baroque um, musical figure and kind of cultural figure coming into the song in the shape of the organ and the kind of simple descending bass line. So it's kind of borrowing some of its majesty from associations that audiences would, would have had with Baroque and classical music. So in that sense, yeah, it feels really important to the song, to the otherworldliness of the song. Mm. It's also, it seems like structurally quite important as well. Like, you know, yeah, great. It sort of builds to that sort of massive sort of drop again, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Like, dun, dun, yeah. Dun, um, it's like Haitian Duck Foundation. When a man loves a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he recently sued the rest of Procol Harum for ah. a share of the profits because up until 2005, the money was being split between the guy who wrote the, the other tune and the lyricist. So he successfully, I think he had to go to the House of Lords in the end. And the House mm. of Lords were like, yeah, the organ's well important to this song. Have 40% of all future royalties. Well, they would have had a forensic musicologist. But they, would, they didn't give him any uh, back, backdated money no, because no he took too money. long to sue... I need to jump back to what a forensic musicologist is. Forensic musicologist is someone who goes in for very cases like that and um, basically testifies about... Have you never seen a CSI musicology? (laughs) (laughs) No, but you know the defence or the prosecution will commission a forensic musicologist who echoes what they want. Yeah. So in that case, you'd have two forensic musicologists. It's it's often... (laughs) Facing off. Yeah. Quite possibly, yeah. Um, Have you ever done this? I actually was asked to do it um, for a case not so long ago where a composer and a label probably shouldn't name the Don't label. name any of them, but no, just tell us the outline of the case. Um, well, I had to refuse because it was going to be a lot of hassle for not much money. Right. And I don't even know if I would have had my day in court. It would have been absolutely fascinating, but I just couldn't commit to it. Right. Basically, um, he had signed a contract to do release an album with the label. He submitted pieces. They refused, saying they weren't effectively original enough or they were kind of... Not not so much directly plagiarizing previous music, but is that Bach? <laughs> but basically, they weren't. They didn't Just fulfill. The label. <laughs> they didn't fulfill the terms of the contract. So him, he wanted me to come in, examine the pieces, and give a testimony that would basically endorse the idea that yeah. this music was satisfying the contract. But I didn't do. It. But so that's that's what forensic musicology is. They yeah. go in, and usually it's plagiarism cases, authorship cases. So like my sweet lord or something like that. Yeah, who plagiarized that? So My Sweet Lord was accused of plagiarising, um, I can't even remember now. Are there, like, famous friends of musicologists? No, no, no. no. God, no. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, there's someone being, Celebrity like, famous in musicology. No. <laughs> the, 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 top, the number one in the game, isn't it? If, he, if you can get him, no, he'll, prove, he'll prove no. anything. Do we agree that it's a great song? Oh, I it's do. tremendous. I right? love yeah. it. The only qualm I've got about it is the fade out is such a cop out. Yeah, it's so weird, isn't it? It's like a you expect Tony Blackburn to come in after. Yeah, you? I've always been troubled by fade outs in general. I yeah, I mean long... generally, like they can do them, can't you? Yeah, like, sometimes they never did a fade out. The Beatles or Oasis or someone Nirvana never did a fade out. Right, which is supposed to mean something, but I don't think well, it that's does. That's interesting. Yeah, but this is I did read it was originally ten minutes. So I guess that could be a problem, but don't it's, yeah, it fades out so badly. I mean, occasionally I fade like out. I kind of like the fade out on this one. 
It, it I know really, what you're saying. It threw me. I thought I'd. Yeah. Uh, I like things that throw me then. Yeah, it's true. Have you, did you watch the video? Yeah. Some of the worst lip syncing ever in the history of. MTV wouldn't have it, would they? They were like, you've tried, but it's yeah. not even close to uh, lip syncing. That's worse than Kate Bush, and you're trying. Brian Wilson uh, considers this. Do you know about this? Considers his funeral march. And every time he hears a white shadow pal, he becomes convinced he's at his home funeral. Apparently, John Lennon used the... to play it a lot in the Rolls Royce. Yeah. You're telling Brian Wilson what's got the right rhythm or the wrong yeah. rhythm. It's bold. Me and Brian. What a forensic musicologist you are. It's supposed to be a dactylic rhythm, long, short, short, for a few marches. Boom, 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 boom. And that sounds like that. What's that? Well, give me an example. You don't have to dun, stick around the brain about dun, the way your life will turn out. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah? <laughs> kind of. That's the only example I can think of. You won't fool the children of revolution. <laughs> Track six, Oasis, Wonderwall. But they're from Manchester. I hear you cry. <laughs> they're not from Ireland. Yeah, they're from Manchester, all five of them. And then Irish Blood, English Heart. Yeah, that's they're made of. Um, and Tony McCarroll got kicked out after whatever, didn't he? Well, after some might say, I suppose. And was the drummer and was replaced by Eltham's Alan White, who came recommended by Paul Weller as his brother Steve White was the drummer for Paul Weller. And I think he was in the Style Council as well. Yeah, I think he was. And uh, yeah, Alan White was in Oasis for... Nine years till 2004 when he was replaced. Do you know who he was replaced by in 2004? Zach Starkey. Yeah, Ringo Starr's son. Yeah, that's right. Because they got the. Or, or as it says, you know, he was replaced by who, the Who drummer. Yeah. Uh, Ringo Starkey. Starr's son. Uh, it's a funny sort of. I know this is slightly off topic, but it's really odd the sort of transition with like Oasis, like later on, where it sort of they tried to turn into a supergroup where they were going we're going to get this guy from well supergroup heavy stereo yeah. but like Andy Ride from oh, Ride. Andy, Andy, Andy Bell, Bell from, from Ride, Ride yeah. yeah was like from Hurricane major, number one wasn't it well, well, well Ride was serious I know they were but I really yeah. liked Hurricane number one yeah, so yeah I quite liked them just another illusion but all that ever really mattered was the Gallagher's or as as you'd say the Gallagher's as I'd say the Gallagher's the drumming's better isn't it once he comes in I don't think that's no, I remember at school better. right making the argument in sixth form, that, Al- that Tony McCarroll was a better drummer than... Uh... Why were you doing that? But I made this argument, and like, I didn't really have much to back it. And this kid who was like... I don't really use the word muso, but I'm going to use it now. He just came in out and supported me. And suddenly, yeah. like, I didn't look like an idiot. My point was, really, that the two memorable bits of Oasis... Live drumming, Forever and... Supersonic. Supersonic. He's going to say Champagne Supernova. No, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Supersonic. That's a lot more memorable than anything Alan White ever did. But they're not they're memorable in their bluntness. Like they're they're just basic drum patterns yeah. that a lot of people yeah, play right, in songs. Right, right, right. It's only that they start the song with but some they're drums. They're the two basic, it, yeah. like I, I started playing a bit of drums and they're the patterns that you, you, you learn. The really like the, the two and four yeah, fucking yeah. dum dum ch or bum ch as in Supersonic. It's got the little Tom thing and the live forever. So it's, yeah, but, but this story that gets told about Alan White being a much better drummer, rubbish. No? Rubbish. They're both terrible. <laughs> <laughs> He's, um... There was a feature on, um... Uh, News Round. No, it was on, um... Who was it? Radcliffe, uh, when Mark Radcliffe was doing The Late Show on Radio 1. 
uh, they had this little, and I think this might have been the, the, like where Tony McHale was done for. But they had like Tony McHale's drum masterclass, and it was basically Mark Riley pretending to be Tony McHale, and just sort of like hitting a dustbin, uh, <laughs> hitting like dustbins and biscuit tins and stuff. Yeah. And it was just him sort of explaining what he was doing, and he's like, he just hit stuff. Yeah. No, I think there's instances on definitely maybe where Noel Gallagher plays the drums, isn't there? Yeah. Like, we're like, get off, mate, if you can't. <laughs> yeah. But, like, we used to have this joke at school, like, about uh, Griggsy just not being plugged in, the bassist. Right, yeah, you yeah. can't hear a bass on any Oasis song, can you? When I say Oasis, it's I'm playing, referring to the first three albums. It's playing the roots, so it kind of melds in with the guitar. So, yeah. Is it just well, like. Of course, dun, as well. Dun, 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 dun. Like, yeah. just literally just putting your finger on the fifth fret. I'm trying to think, is there any. There is a memorable bass line in Oasis song, but it's Go Let It Out and, and El Gallier plays it. So. But also, we're talking about Wonderwall, and if you look at the video for Wonderwall, Giggsy Your is man. Giggsy. Because uh, he's on hiatus at that point. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ocean, didn't he? Scott McLeod. Scott McLeod, who soon after that uh, wrote Understanding Comics. It's a comic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really oh, up there, right. up there. It's spelled differently. Yeah, yeah. Scott McLeod. It's a bad gag. Yeah. But he, he cried off that tour um, because he was too tired and he wanted to see his family. And Noel Gallagher, did you see that really funny video that went around recently? Someone did a super cut of Noel Gallagher had, had Gallagher had commented, done a kind of director's comment, director's commentary on um, all the Oasis videos. Oh right, no, and well, you have to watch it. Yeah, well, someone's he's done actually super, done it, or someone's just he's done it, together. and someone's done a super cut of all the bits where he's just like, "What were we thinking? This is <laughs> ludicrous. This is ridiculous." And he tells the story about your man in that. Um, he said halfway through the tour, halfway through the, his dates that he scheduled to play on, he just goes, "No, I want to go home to Manchester or wherever to see my family." And all guy was like, "What's that all about?" Yeah, it was really funny. But anyway, there's my cool, story. I'll look it up. Yeah, um, Owen Morris, the producer, um, he says Alan was obviously very different from Tony. He was intelligent and articulate and a real musician. That's quite damning, isn't it? But then he <laughs> says, "I was never a, a fan of Alan's drumming." Um, He's essentially a jazz drummer. Do you think that's generous? It's very generous. I think that goes with him so far as using brushes and Wonderwall. Yeah, right. He <laughs> says he was always shuffling away on his snare, which actually became the signature rhythm of Wonderwall. So that's why we picked Wonderwall. Okay, right. So do, you could have picked out the back. I would have picked out the back in anger for that fail. Doom, doom. Oh, it's his stand, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know that bit? You know the bitch after the guitar solo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know it. Should we, is it too late to change it? No, Wonderwall. <laughs> he met his wife on the set of Don't Look Back in Anger also. Oh, nice. Yeah, but two, they were divorced by 2000. But, but oh, I just yeah. think Oasis... Uh, I was, as a kid, as a teen, Oasis were the first... Well, probably after Madness, but I was younger then. First contemporary band that I really loved. Actually, Madness were not contemporary, were they? <laughs> It depends how old you are. But I bought a My Girls, My Girls Mad at Me kind of re-release. So right. I felt it was contemporary. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but yes, I had posters all over my walls. Like I was just sitting. I'd get home from school and be playing my guitar. And Obsessed. Like, yeah, my mum would call me for dinner and then I would put the guitar down and then take my bag and coat off. Do you know what I mean? It was just yeah. like, yeah. it was all about it. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, w- I was mad for it, you might mad say. Who <laughs> wasn't that at that age? I went to Nebworth. You went to Nebworth? Yeah. For just for a day out, just, it was lovely, lovely grounds, <laughs> um, and I went to what was the Loch Lomond. Uh, they played some indoor dates. Um, Old Court was Old Court, court yeah. 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 And I went to Old Court, and I was gutted because um, we could only get seats. Right. So it was me and my sister and some friends, 
just sat up in the seats sort of going, this is, this is the worst he's ever watching the bootleg Beatles. And then Liam Gallagher came and sat next to us. And you're like, oh, these are the really? best seats ever. Leave him alone. He's watching the bootleg Beatles. He's not here to. Uh, it's his time, isn't it? He is the bootleg. Beatles. But it was like it was like he just sat down uh, in front of us, and you're like, you know. And afterwards, we were like, so glad we got seats. Yeah. We got to sit next to Liam Gallagher. Oh. I mean, they, I think Oasis got pretty bad. Um, like the first two and a half records, I like. I loved. Uh, you know, half of beer now. Probably, you know what? Three quarters to be honest. Probably just Magic Pie that I didn't like. Um, and then there's a load of rubbish stuff after that, and I'm not really interested. And grew out of it. It's I think, lots of good stuff out of that. I think. Yeah, I can't let them down with these like Oasis. I actually just coincidentally last week I spent about three hours on uh, YouTube. Just I had to do this periodically every year, so reconnect with that aspect of my childhood. I just <laughs> I have a strange relationship with them, but yeah. I think that Wonderwall is you know to use Steve's words from earlier, it's undeniable. I think it's such a great song. Sounds so great. Those opening guitar chords are just perfect. I can't even experience it as sound though anymore. It's it's just Wonderwall. Like. Yeah, it's just it is that thing. Isn't yeah. it? It's that thing that happens. It does happen in that way. There's a great quote from uh, Noel Gallagher about Wonderwall where he goes, uh, "He said I knew it was a great song because no one can ruin it." He goes, "You can hear a busker or someone doing karaoke or someone at a wedding just absolutely murdering the song." He goes, "The song's so good." The, the, the sort of essence of it shines through. Do you know what I mean? And I, yeah, I've I, never I mean, heard a good Oasis live version of it. Well, yeah, and the, yeah, exactly. And the reason is because he sings it every single time live, doesn't he? Yeah. I don't think Liam's ever sung it live, has no, he? No. But Liam, I mean, and Liam Gallagher as a vocalist is a hundred times better than him, isn't he? Yeah. Mm, I disagree. Well, in a way, I disagree. We're talking earlier about range. Yeah. And there's different types of range. Like, no, I hate to, I, I think I did this in a previous podcast of yours, but... I hate to draw a sharp opposition between technique and kind of effect or power, but Noel inarguably has better technique and better range and better control over his voice. Like it's when you see him live, he can hit the note and don't look back in anger in the chorus. He can hit the he does the falsetto and live forever that Liam used to do, and he stopped doing it because he thought it was quote marks gay. Um, <laughs> Did he think it was gay? Yeah, you and I. Well, yeah. <laughs> So Noel has a much stronger voice, and on certain tracks, Master Plan, um, Sunday Morning Call, he, d- he does really good. Um, mm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm finished at that point. The only thing okay, I well, Master Plan. <laughs> After the first three Acquiesce, albums, they both sing really well on. Yeah, Acquiesce is tremendous. Um, tremendous, yeah. That's both of them, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Talk Tonight, well. really good Noel vocal. Lots of good Noel vocals. Yeah, some good Where did it all go wrong yeah. on Stand and Shoulder Giants? But I just think Wonderwall, we've heard, we've heard Liam do it on record, on the best record you know, and it's just whenever he does it live, I think if I was there, I'd be shaking my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, what about those gigs when Noel just did all of it? Yeah. That would have been brutal. But Liam, no, yeah, absolutely Liam has that kind of voice where you, when he's on it, it's just... Yeah. Like Slide Away, I was listening to the other night. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, my Slide God. Away, yeah. First gig I ever saw was Oasis. Right. 1995. Right. In Slane Castle. I didn't go for Oasis. Oh, I went for Oregon. I remember seeing it. I thought I had it on tape, actually. It was on the radio, Slane Castle. Live at Slane Castle, I think it was a bootleg. Yeah. Well, it was pre-Morning Glory. But I remember just going and just half the crowd were, were just already had the uniform, the yeah, Oasis yeah. uniform. And I just thought, I just I, I had a hat. Like, you know, well, the logo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The t-shirt yeah, with yeah, the logo yeah. and just kind of well presented in a way. Do you know what I mean? The kind I had an Oasis t-shirt in West Ham colours. I was so proud. So pleased with myself. Oh, I'm, I'm so ashamed. Yeah. Track seven. 
Desiree kissing you. Spot of a choice from Desiree, won't we, really? Norwood from Norwood. Money don't make my world go round. I'm reaching out for a higher Your ground. Grounds. Which one is that? Because we're living in a crazy maze. You know, from the office, innit? Why do you want to work here? Oh, Shoot. I forgot. <laughs> he reached out for the. I always think of it's got to be and the worst, yeah. also the worst lyric in history of pop music. Life. Oh, life. Oh, life. Oh, life. Oh, life. <laughs> Do, 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 I don't do. Know. I think Noel Gallagher's... Uh, no, because Noel's Noel lyrics... song at random. <laughs> no, Noel's lyrics always sit in the music in a certain way that convinces you more than life, oh life, oh life, do, 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 do. No? No. Uh, There's some awkward I mean, Noel Gallagher lyrics. You know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think, though, if we get back to this one, yeah. it's terrible, isn't it? What a rubbish song. So really? boring. I kind of Nothing agree. to it whatsoever. I, and I thought it was me at first. I, I listened to one version. It was just like the song, and I was like, "Well, that's not fair because it's from a soundtrack, isn't yeah. it?" So I was like, well, "Maybe it's dependent." And that's not really how songs work. Have you not seen that film? I've seen the film, but yeah. I didn't know the song from it. Right. So I listened to the song with the footage playing over it, yeah. and it was better, but still not good. Just so boring. There's nothing happening, is there? Yeah. Nah. Dun. The idea that Naxalite fails us on and this succeeds is a joke. No, nah, the thing is, I have, a, I have a very personal, emotional connection to it. Because of the film, isn't it? No, because the kids came down the aisle to it. Ah. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> so, like... Boring. No, no but it, I no, mean, no, I'd I, never I, listened to the song before. This is the thing, right? So, when we got married uh, two and a half years ago, three years ago, whatever... Um, when was the date? It was April? 20, uh, 22nd of October, 2011. All right, so if anyone wants to squish me happy anniversary. I can know. Yeah, so obviously, you know, it's well known now that I was already weeping. Like, that, you know, I was crying before it this was started. Is, I didn't want to say it, but at this point, <laughs> at this point during the ceremony, I'm not listening to music. I'm trying to work out how to catch him when he inevitably <laughs> faints. The thing is, yeah, it's, it's shameful enough that I cried in the wedding. Shameful. But the idea that I was going to faint, Steve, it's just... I, I'm, I'm, I was just watching these knees thinking, no look, he's such a big lump. He's uh, no way this is holding him up. So I'm like angling my body, so I wasn't paying attention to music. So, yeah, I, mean, yeah, I didn't remember this at all from the wedding. No, so I started, when my mom you were too busy watching me watch him. When my mum came in, I started crying, you know, and, uh, and I went to the bathroom tried to wipe tears away. They just wouldn't stop. So then we, uh, I'm at the front, you know. They're like, "Oh, she's coming in now." And then this came on, and like, yeah. I mean, Lakeisha had said we were having a song from Roman and Juliet, but I just assumed. It was oh, like, she kept that a surprise. No, I just then. You thought it was exit it. music. I just thought it was exit music from. You thought it was exit? Yeah, radio sound from that. I thought it was that one, uh, love me, love me. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But I just not bothered to listen to it, and then it came in, and I don't know, man, it just made me just like tear. I was. Well, just I think in the a final straw way. for you was like because as Lakeisha was coming down the aisle, Jack cleaned me. Goes the worst thing is Lakeisha definitely won't cry. And then Lakeisha got to the front, lifted her veil, and was in tears. Oh. And he just broke at that. No, that's fair enough, on. though, isn't it? But the, but the <laughs> thing, she had little drops. But I, I since, I've since heard the song and it just brings it all back. Of course, right. yeah. Right, well, and I do think it is nice. I mean, there's a couple of bits where she starts going, yeah. which is really bad. Like, she does yeah. she over- bad lyrics and she sings low. <laughs> she overplays the high and the head voice and chest voice, the contrast. Like, she yeah. just yeah. oversings it all, I think. But I'd, I've just. Uh... When you have an emotional connection with Yeah, this is, this is the thing. This is an unfair choice on your yeah. part. You, you, realize... like, you've hung us out to dry. We're, we're, we're looking like exactly, monsters now. Yeah. Sort of going, uh, this, is <laughs> this is rubbish. Who'd like this? No, who, I mean... who can have any emotional connections? It's terrible. Oh, you, you're welcome, though. <laughs> yeah. We, we were there. 
But it's not so te- it's not so bad. I don't think that it couldn't work in that context. I can see it yeah, myself getting yeah. really. Well, that whole thing was an, a mess, wasn't it? So, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I don't want to come down to white shade of pale, do I? <laughs> I don't want to associate with that. <laughs> Track eight, Dexies. Nowhere. Good choice, Akisha. Don't worry, all good. She doesn't listen. <laughs> yeah, the, only, the only saying racist is uh, the fact that Lakeisha will never hear me yeah. damning the yeah. words <laughs> the song that she went at, came down, down the aisle to yeah Dexies Dexies on the album One Day I'm Going to Saw from 2012 where Mick Talbot Merton Mick was the band leader and he plays piano and keyboards throughout the record we're both big Dexies fans me and Steve don't know if you are Stephen and um, not as much as you two, but definitely. Yeah, yeah this is their, this was their first record in twenty seven years, and even Kevin Rowland's first record in since my beauty was it? Yeah, yeah what's yeah, that? That's yeah. about ninety five. Yeah, yeah, ninety six maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was after Oasis, wasn't it? Because it was yeah. it didn't bankrupt Creation Records, but it didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's a marvelous record. And me and Steve went to see uh, Dexys at the Duke of York's Theatre. Um, I guess a year later or whatever it was, six months later, and Mick Talbot had just left the band at that point. It was a fantastic show. And the rec- the reason the record's so brilliant is got to be down to him in, uh, in no small part, I think. I mean, yeah, Kevin the arrangement Rowland, of songs are just Yeah, small. exactly. I mean, it's Kevin Rowland like, is, a, is a genius, but oh, yeah. he, doesn't, he doesn't do everything. He no. needs to be a band leader, you know. Yeah. Mm. Although his name is Kevin Rowland, he is the leader of the band. He's made that very clear <laughs> in the past. <laughs> So he doesn't do arrangements around, does he not? Has he never done arrangements? He, no, he does. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs, to be honest. I didn't realise that he was very much creative control. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Maybe I've done phrased he's, it well. He's one of those guys where... He's not the musician, yeah. do you know what I mean? Right, yeah. And also, if you, if you look at every iteration of Dexys, he's always had a, a strong foil. Yeah. That's the key to it. You know, it's the... Johnny Murray it's, e- it's easy to look at sort of Dexys and, and think of the, the myth of the solitary genius. Just sort yeah. of like, he's, he's dressing them mm, and he's doing, yeah, yeah. covering all the adverts and like doing all the press. And that's what you're sold as well. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the reality is, and he's the first to admit, if you listen to interviews, again, across their history, mm. he always gives so much credit to okay, the musicians. Yeah, yeah we see him live, he's like constantly like, you know, yeah. pointing at big Jim Patterson, you know. <laughs> This is great though, this song, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant, oh, it's isn't it? And so it's good. relevant, isn't it? And it's just such brilliant Dexies as well. It's not just like, it's so, it so encapsulates what I love about them. The, the tone of the vocals, yeah. the style mm. of the vocals, the lyrical content, you know. Not afraid uh, to put a little bit of humour in as well. Exactly, it? Even yeah. there's one bit where like, you know, he, he doesn't always keep his vocal patterns the same throughout a song. He never does, no, does he? No. Never. But it's a bit where he just goes, nobles in the country. <laughs> 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 it's out of nowhere and it's just great. <laughs> So the song is... Do you want to tell us what it's about, one of you two? Because you know more than me. You go ahead. Well, it's... Kind of very identical. Take your Irish stereotypes. It's, it's, it's something that he's re- uh, referred to across... Again, across all the different iterations of it. And it is the, the conflict between being born, you know... Of, of one culture into another place. What's the line? It's, I was born here of an Irish family. Yeah. And it's always something that's lyrically and intellectually occupied him across the, the life of Dexys. This this idea of, and it's something we talked about on our Irish in, mm. in South London episode. This idea of having, and, and particularly the Anglo-Irish thing, particularly growing up with a strong Irish background, um, and as part of that, 
being taught from a very young age that the you know Britain is not your friend, <sighs> Britain is your enemy, and you know don't think of things that are British in a positive way. But growing up in that country, and yeah. like you know my coping mechanism is to go, I'm, I'm in England. Mm. I don't recognise Britain as, as much as I can. You know, I won't get a passport. Right, yeah. I won't acknowledge um, empire, monarchy, anything that's oh, British. Okay. I'll, I'll absorb all the English things and I embrace them completely, but I won't have the British things. And he's that's why know, Steve refused the .co.uk website. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a joke. But he has always he always suggests .com though. <laughs> sure, for communists. <laughs> But yeah, and, and you know, and I think partly, I mean, leaving aside everything else, you know, it, the music's brilliant. His vocals are brilliant. They're so much fun. They look great every single time. The state, every time you see him live on screen, or, or if you're lucky enough to go along, it's just a tremendous experience. Yeah, but for me, well. part yeah. of part of the attraction of Dexys is this. You know, when he when he refers to that, it does it does talk to me yeah. in, in a way. You know, where I you know I have similar thoughts and feelings as, as he does. But I. Th- Absolutely, but I also think it probably talks to everyone in the sense that identity is always absolutely yeah, yeah. a That's failure. A universal idea, it's always it? a failure, and it's yeah. always constructed, and yeah. we all feel like we've drifted between categories. And you're handed a fiction, and then yeah. it's just how quickly you can you have to make it useful for yeah. yourself. Um, so I think it, yeah, I really and it links in with uh, yeah, I think it's great. I love the line, "I want to be the man of my dreams." Yeah. I mean, you can pick pretty much any. He's just so good. Those lyrics, like, yeah. I was reading the he's lyrics. He's so underrated, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. Like, people just have no idea how brilliant he is. You said it before, didn't you? That they've got to be the most underrated. Yeah, really. In, just in people just history. look past yeah. them because completely. it is. People go, "Come on, Eileen," and that's, and that's great. Yeah, they don't. I didn't. <laughs> I, and I was guilty myself. I didn't. Really, I remember um, our friend Glenn, who composed the soundtrack. He introduced me to Dexys and, re- and sort of burnt all three records for me. I mean, I bought them since, you know, on a number of formats, um, but. I remember saying something about, oh, what, Common Eileen? And he's yeah. like, yeah, but in the context. Yeah. And it, but now, even out of the context, I love it. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, they just... They Common Eileen was one of the, great, just one of the greatest songs. And it's another one where the emotional hook, it just drags you around drags exactly you in, yeah. where you need to be. What We need to be jumping at this point and just sort of getting ready to jump at this point. It's just like, it's so Amazing. paced, so well paced. And also, it's it? not to a click track, so it speeds up and slows down yeah. in amazing ways. But I was I was exactly the same. I was I always loved the song, but I was just thought, what's his story? And then when my beauty happened, I yeah. bought the. Well, I didn't quite buy the kind of thing that we were selling, but the Q magazine thing of what is he doing? Yeah, what is yeah. this all about? Didn't have the kind of imagination as a fourteen-year-old to kind of go, hang on, there's something else happening here. And it does actually relate to all the stuff he's talking about in those Absolutely, lyrics. Yeah. He's living it in my beauty, isn't yeah. it? It's identity. Yeah. It's it's a dream, and he's I've, trying to. I've kind got of, to be myself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my beauty. That cover of the Whitney Houston song, "The Greatest Love." Oh yeah, it's just it's over, it's over, it's over. It's so good, amazing. But I just kept the the, the image on the front. You know, he's lifting up the dress and he's just yeah. got his package, and it's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other song I was going to pick from the album was "Now," the opening track, which is beautiful as well, and uh, that has a lyric, "Your sad Irish face," which always makes me think of you, Steve. Oh. <laughs> He doesn't have a sad face, though. No, he doesn't. I know. I know. But I have to try and imagine it when it's on. <laughs> I'm going to get that album, though, because I really like their three albums, so I didn't even think of getting that one. Yeah, the, this is one, the, the it, kind of thing, isn't it? You kind of assume that someone really... You know, you look at a band's discography, you go, at which point can I stop? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's great, though, when you go to there, because you go, three yeah. albums. <laughs> yeah, right. And this is the thing. There's no... It's just all good. Yeah. There's yeah, no, yeah. And, and the great thing was, like, when um, One Never Saw came out, 
it was like all you can do is like ruin it yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you're like, oh no, this is brilliant. Yeah. And it sounds different to the others. Yeah, it qualifies it somehow. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's, a, it's another, and this is what is great about it. You know, every version of the band, it's just a scorch earth thing mm. where it's like, we're going to sound, like, you know, uh, so we're going to do uh, loads of horns and it will sound like this. Mm. And this will be our signature sound and we'll be very successful. And then actually, uh, and you know, uh, famously between the first album and the second album, Decided he wanted it to be yeah. um, strings, wasn't it? Yeah, strings. Yeah. So rather than hire people who could play strings, he just got <laughs> the people in the band already stringed instruments. So can you learn how to play this? And I went, not really, <laughs> <laughs> not to the level that you're going to expect because you're famously quite fastidious. <laughs> so and in the end, he had to like sack them all as if it was their fault Amazing. that they couldn't become you know professional violinists overnight. But yeah, and and that was his thing. And it, it wasn't him, you know, kicking the band out to be. You know, a terrible person. He was mm. like, and I need to sound like this now, and you can't do it, can you? So I have to like get and end up nicking like people off yeah. his mates' band and all sorts. Yeah, great. It's just like a fascinating story. Yeah, fascinating guy. Going back to Mick Talbot though, because you know this is the reason we picked the song. Oh yeah. Um, you know, he was the other guy in the Style Council, really, wasn't he? Yeah. I say the other guy. I don't really. I'm not really a fan of the Style Council. I love the jam. The Style Council, you know, there's one record where it's just him and Paul Weller on the cover, so that shows yeah, you how yeah. important he is. Yeah, yeah. I'm the same with the Style Council, never get into them, really like the jam, never get into the Style Council. Long Again, bought the Q myth. Right. Because Q yeah. were like, oh, his weird phase where he yeah, was yeah, yeah. collaborating with women. And, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Paul Weller, there's a long, a long history of uh, collaborating with South London, isn't there? Yeah. Where you is know. Paul Weller from? He's from uh, Woking. Welkin, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where is that? It's, it's outside London, obviously, but not far, is it? Yeah, no, it's it's not Kent. But Mick Talbot was in the Merton Parkers, which is quite a neat pun, isn't it? Yeah. You know, he's from Merton Parker, like you wear a... Near Merton Park, and you wear a Parker, you know. That's what they wore in those days. Um, I don't know how neat a pun it is, but it's certainly a pun. It's a good pun. It's scans. Yeah, apparently he's not... He's never coming on the show, apparently. He's very difficult to get hold of. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to try and nab him after that gig, but he'd already disappeared out of the band. Never mind. Right, track nine. Our first bit of classical music on the show, isn't it, Steve? Oh. You can listen to all these tracks on southlandhardcore.com. There'll be a playlist there underneath the episode. You can just click on them, and there'll be YouTube links to all of them. Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, song of Hiawatha. Yeah, I feel a bit bad, because... Um chosen a 32 minute song for people to oh right I only listened to a 10 minute bit so I'll put that you on might, it might have been the overture or this various the this is the thing like this is it's for me it's a lot of, of new should it be a bonus territory. disc a bonus disc I mean is it not, not a literal disc I mean like you know what track should be I mean I, I listened to Hiawatha's uh, Wedding Feast because that was the hit <laughs> of the whole thing <laughs> Do you want me to come in there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'd say, first of all, it's not a 32-minute song. <laughs> Straight away, uh, I'm zero for one. No, but people, people do use song as a very movable feast. It's not a song. It's a cantata. So a cantata is a, a choral, choral piece, piece. Yeah. Um, without a narrative, but there can be kind of a narrative, a loose narrative. Traditionally, a cantata contrasts with an oratorio, 
They both usually have a kind of a sacred theme, at least in the Brock period. Bach wrote a lot of cantatas. The cantatas wouldn't really have a narrative, oratorios would have a narrative, but they're not staged like operas, they're narrated. That's what a kind of cantata is. So you can have solo songs or arias, you can have kind of recitatives, you have people kind of talking essentially, and you can have choruses. So it fits into that kind of tradition. Um, and this one that we're talking about is obviously the first part of a trilogy. So Hiawatha's Wedding Feast was the first one. Yeah. And then there was two more. Then The Death of Minnie Ha Ha was yeah. the middle one. Yeah. And then... That's a comedy, is it? <laughs> and then Hiawatha's Departure is the final piece. Yeah. But then there's an and overture the, as well. Well, the it? overture was then retconned on yeah. afterwards. Yeah. So it becomes <laughs> a... It becomes Song of Hiawatha then. A kind of a... a yeah. Because the overture... Sort of tells you elements of what's coming. Is that well? An overture, an overture at a certain point in history, became something that advertised the tunes you would right. hear, especially in musicals. Yeah, it's essentially a potpourri of the songs you're going to hear. So I have a bit of a melody, then go something else. Opera has a slightly different function, at least up until mid nineteenth century or something. So you wouldn't hear things from the show. You would hear a very strict form, fast, slow, fast, or slow, fast, and it would enter you into the world of it without you hearing actual music from the. Boring everyone. I'm no, fascinating. No, no, no. So, an overture at this point in time, yeah, would kind of just advertise what's to come next, and especially with this kind of piece because it is, I mean, it's classical, but it's in that kind of festive populist uh, style where an overture, yeah, very much functions as an advertisement because the commercial side of this is obviously really important. Because this is the thing, commercially, this was a smash hit. Yeah, this sold. As sheet music, you mm-hmm. know, hundreds of thousands of copies. And that, you know, for a number of reasons, I found very odd. Like, listening to it as a piece, I, you know, I'm trying to work out, because there's choral bits, but I couldn't make yeah. out what was being said. But you know that from the title, it's a wedding feast. So there's, like, yeah, yeah. bits where people sound really happy, and I was like, that makes sense. bits where they're angry. I don't know, I couldn't work out what was going on this wedding. This is the thing. <laughs> I didn't want to cheat and sort of, like, you know, read the long yeah, yeah, poem yeah. and try and work out the story of it but I felt a bit lost yeah and is that just the thing where I don't have the context to sort of absolutely yeah, yeah. it's like if someone from that era heard I oh, should be so lucky by Kylie Minogue they wouldn't have the genre references yeah. and so on or like the Tron 2 soundtrack exactly right. I don't know what's there's like no what point in the motorbikes again for the computer <laughs> program but I'll put it on now then there's no more complexity in how this thing works than how anything works it's just conventions and it's just a bit longer than a normal than a song you know did you enjoy it as a piece well, I mean, I've never been a big fan because it's sitting in that world where he's caught between kind of Edwardian, kind of post-Gilbert and Sullivan, really big public music where the English middle classes will go along and have a great time, listen to the big, happy, cheerful orchestra music and feel like they're sampling high culture. And also in this case, feel like they're getting uh, a pinch of the exotic, yeah. both through the composer and through the subject. So I've never been completely sold on... Yeah, I this kind of that stuff. Too, <laughs> Ditto. But no, it's fine. Yeah, it's 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 solid piece. In of music. terms of people buying the sheet music, mm. was the idea that people would play it and sing along at home because it's yeah, it an would orchestral be a, piece. Yeah, it would it? be a piano reduction, right? Okay, or possibly a two piano reduction. Okay, so you would essentially play the bones of it on the piano, gotcha. um, and people might sing along at a party or very similar to when I bought or say, Oasis tablature. Absolutely, it's yeah. the same thing. It's the same thing. So, I mean, it was interesting to have it on this list of things. Actually, it's interesting leading into it from uh, Dexys and the talk about identity and how it's all kind of construction yeah. and stuff. Because 
This... I was born here to a Sierra Leonean father. <laughs> yeah, but clearly the no composer. to be. Hoban, <laughs> Norwood. This is thrown up the exact same ideas, both yeah. in the composer and in the poem that it's based on. Because it's a kind of a... Um, it's a kind of a manufactured Indian myth, isn't it? Or Native American myth, written by a white man. Yeah. Adopted by a mixed race or Creole um, for a Victorian Edwardian English audience as kind of public art. So there's all weird strains of identity happening in this thing. So I think it's interesting for leading on from that. Mm. Very. Com- I mean, I'm, I'm don't, I know very very little about classical music, but. You know, I put it on and it did just sound like dull. Yeah. yeah it didn't, I was music, trying to connect with it. Like, know. the closest thing I could come to to it if it sounded like was like uh, a silly symphony, you know, the old uh, cartoons. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the yeah, sort of. Right. They, they were the only it's sort of. It's funny with. Like, say, like, I was listening to, to. I don't know, say you pull out some music from the 70s yeah. or whatever that you've never heard before. Mm-hmm. Even though it's like 40 years old. Like, yeah. I suppose what you were saying earlier with the historical time. time. Um, you know, it's it things can just sound incredible and like it's like nothing you've ever heard. But it just seems to me very difficult for something that's a hundred or two hundred no, years old. No, it's not. Well, okay, maybe. To, do you know what I mean? To, to no, rock frame, me over. Yeah, yeah. But you have a frame of reference. Anything you're listening to from the seventies, unless it's new classical music, exists within popular culture and exists within the tradition of music that you're familiar with. So you know the form it's using. It's probably unless it's prog rock, it's going to be a song form of verses and choruses. No, it mostly was prog rock this week. <laughs> okay, but prog rock. You, Prog rock uses those forms by not using them. Do you know what I mean? It it uses verse and chorus, but it kind of fragments them, and you kind of hear strain. Like you can hear it, you can hear aspects of refrains that repeat and stuff. But the point is, it has lyrics. It has guitars. It has all these things. It has a pulse. It has a pulse. It sometimes you, has flutes. <laughs> it has a pulse that you can entrain to. So you you kind of you identify with the pulse. You can hear it. You follow it. You follow the narrative of the lyrics. You hear the the kind of harmonic language that's being used. You're familiar with. So. But you can't necessarily do that with this. But what I would say is, if you ever, if you want to get into classical music, I'd often say this to people, but one easy way in is, apart from kind of learning about, apart from reading on Wikipedia about the kind of cultural context and so on, because that always gets me involved with something. What, what does this mean in, in terms of its time? So I think a really nice way of doing it is listen to the piece of music and try and hear repetition. Try and hear where the music starts to repeat, because then you will start to understand its form. And then you'll start to understand how it's built and where the kind of peaks happen and so on. It's just an easy thing to do if you kind of go, I, I can't get a hole in this. It just sounds like boom, 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 over and over again. Yeah, try and hear the why, themes. Try yeah. and hear the repetition. You'll start to pick up other things then. That's what I always say to people. It's a fascinating character. Born, as you say, in Holborn, so on the wrong side of the river for us, but raised in Croydon. Studies at the Royal College of Music, but then goes on to become a professor of music at the Crystal Palace School of Music, mm. which was this whole... Operation I'd never heard of the Crystal Palace School. Lots of engineering and other uh, practical things. Edward Elgar gives him a, a leg up at a key point, but it's yeah, Hiawatha is his hit, as I say. Yeah. And there's an interesting sort of story that spins out of that, where he sells the rights to the song of Hiawatha or the Hiawatha's Wedding Feast, fifteen guineas straight up to a music publisher, and obviously it goes on to sell thousands upon thousands of copies and when he dies people are shocked at how little money his family's actually mm. got his wife gets um, a pension and people do various fundraisers for the family so they're okay but people sort of realise 
this is not an acceptable way for people to to make a living. So apparently, almost directly out of that particular scenario mm. with Carl Taylor and the song, uh, High Offer's Wedding Feast, the Performing Rights Society is formed and is established predominantly to make sure that composers are getting uh, an appropriate amount of money for what they're creating. He's the buzzman of Edwardian classical music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, guy from Croydon. Yeah, it's in Norwood the, uh, as well, isn't it? There's a plaque in uh, South Norwood. Yeah, just to make it definitely in the right. Yeah, he lived in South county. Norwood for a while as well, and um, well, it's Croydon itself. It's West Croydon Station where he's taken ill. Mm. Age thirty-seven. Yeah, how did yeah. he die? Pneumonia. Yeah, but I mean, it's at a time where yeah they haven't really got. You can you can get pneumonia and you can die. Freddie Mercury, isn't it? Um, do you know about the uh, 2D statue of him, Steve? No. I say no. 2D, like it's kind of a flat, like metal flat flame. circle. Time. <laughs> True detect. Time's a flat oh, circle. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and there's Ronnie Corbett and Peggy Ashcroft next to him in Charles Charles Street in Croydon. Oh, I don't know this. No. Yeah. I have to have a look. It's not. Don't know that good. Okay. Right, so let's finish up, Steve. What what could go after a half an hour uh, <laughs> song? <laughs> Other than Sid Vicious is my way. Sid Vicious was born in Lewisham Hospital, John Simon Ritchie. Strange that Lewisham Save Lewisham Hospital campaign shows him as look, look who's come from our school. <laughs> this murderer. Want more of these? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sex Pistols, obviously, despite not playing on any of their records. Yeah, and I, I always heard stories that when they played live, they'd unplug his yeah. bass because all he'd do is make a mess and it would just put other people off. So the song, My Way, is obviously a cover of, I mean, most famously Frank Sinatra, but I don't know who wrote it. Paul Anker. Yeah, there you go. Um, oh, you probably guess where I first came across this song, Stephen, this version. Rock and Roll Sandler. No. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, come on, man. <laughs> Do you remember? When Spike, he's driving somewhere and he's got it on the stereo. It was the first time I ever saw Buffy. I turned it on and it was going, an episode. Was and you thought, what the hell is this? Well, yeah. this, was, this version was always on when I was you young, listen, when I was you a kid. You Buffy going, that bloke sounds like he's from Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> For what it is, a quite a um, rough, you know, kind of drunkenly shouting over a kind of classic track it's gotten a lot of play in it yeah it's interesting because like you know one of the things that people when they talked about the pistols if you sort of look back at the history they i think it was uh what's his name Malcolm Malcolm mclaren um mclaren wanted sid vicious to be the lead singer Mm. of the sex pistols and this gives you a real vision of what that would have been like and it's interesting because obviously uh, Leiden has been was so aped by so many other yeah, punk yeah, yeah. front men at the time that it does come across very much as Leiden like, doesn't it? He's like yeah. contorting himself and like sneering. It's across as Liam Gallagher. Yeah it's, yeah, it's so remarkably Liam Gallagher-esque. Yeah. Oh yeah, watch it again with that in mind. Seriously, the sort of sway and swagger and. Oh, I didn't watch it. I only listened to it. Oh no, watch no, not the oh, vocals. You mean physically, the, the right? Uh, yeah. Visually, performative. Well, no, yeah, yeah. And, and that's another thing as well. It's you know, it is a, a piece where you have to see it. Yeah, you have to see the clip from the Great Rock and Roll Swindle 
for it to work as a piece for mm. me. Like, if it's just yeah. the vocals, as you say, it's just like a slurry version of my way. But when you see that performance, he just looks incredible. And, you know, it's such a cliche now, isn't it? The, yeah. the, the, the final piece where he sort of just pulls shoots out a revolver and just yeah. shoots into the crowd. It's such a, it seems tired now as an idea. But, and Burgess did it better. <laughs> but it's so uh, wonderful. And it, it, it's a, a sort of wonderful bit even off there, where he's walking off and he's literally just yeah. flicking Vs behind him as he goes. But just sort of like, <laughs> yeah. It's such a, as I say, you look at it now and go, what a cliche, but you forget at the time. Parable, this yeah. would have been oh, yeah. one of the most shocking things that people would ever have seen. It's just like so, uh, such a remarkable set of images, isn't it? yeah. I remember seeing this a lot when I was young, though, and I I don't know. I think I might have thought it was the version of my way, you know, the the famous version. On the chart show or something. I just remember seeing it a lot when I was young and just thinking, what is going on? Did they always show the gunshots? They can't. I was aware of it. I seemed to be aware of it when I was young. I always I always think of it as being this is the clip that's going around Mm. with him emptying the gun into the crowd. But they can't have been showing that at eleven thirty on a Saturday morning, surely? Yeah. Dead, didn't he? Yep. Overdosed on heroin that his mother gave him. Yeah, his mum. I mean, they didn't do too much reading into his life, really. It's very very grim. Yeah. But his mum had him on drugs before he was even a musician. It's not a sort of, he was a victim of the rock and roll lifestyle. His mum had him. He died at 21 or something, didn't he? What age is he? He's really young. Yeah, it's not far off that. It's super young, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was quite alarmed to read that he once uh, assaulted uh, the enemy's Nick Kent with a bicycle chain. Oh, and yeah. also threatened Whispering Bob Harris. I mean, that's crossing the line, <laughs> isn't it? Whispering Bob Harris. That's Nick Kent's claim to fame, isn't it? He got roughed up by Queen. <laughs> which sort of like does, it hurts you, hurt you great, doesn't it? There's a great, like, another thing I didn't realise well, uh, where the name Sid Vicious came from. Um, and apparently it was John Lydon had uh, a hamster called Sid. And it went half vicious. It was, it was John at the time, obviously. And John was holding... Uh, the, the Hampshire room and he said yeah Sid he, he, and he, he, he put him down looks at John Lydon really hurt and said oh Sid is vicious so they just started calling him Sid <laughs> vicious but there was a bit where and the thing is I don't think this story shows Queen in any particularly good light because mm. um, there was a story where they, they, were, they were recording <laughs> they were recording in the same place and Freddie Mercury had done an interview recently at, at the time where he, he'd said uh you know, I see our mission as a band to bring uh, ballet to the masses. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. apparently, while they were recording, uh, Sid's vicious, uh, drunk and probably high, just sort of staggers into the thing and goes, Oi, you want ballet to the masses yet? And starts laughing. But then Freddie Mercury leaps up and grabs him. First of all, he uh, calls, him, calls him Simon Ferocious. You know, that's such a weak oh, gag, that's, isn't that's it? Surely so that's poor. True. So poor. <laughs> this is the version they want to tell. This is the version Queen wants to tell. Which version is this? Brian Fred, Mays, Freddy, Fred, well, Yeah, but then, um, and then he's like... Um, Simon Ferocious from the, the, the shagging, shagging guns. <laughs> <laughs> but then, uh, yeah, I think not Brian Mays, the other one. Uh, Roger, Roger Taylor. Taylor. Like, he's like going, and then Freddie grabbed him by the lapels and just pushed him out. And you're like, yeah, you've already said he's high and drunk. It's not yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, but you're yeah. just trying to act like you're the... I don't know. Uh, for me, the best line there is, have you brought ballet to the masses yet? And anything after that is just people roughing up someone who's drunk. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I think he would have done a good, quite a good job as the lead singer. He has enough character. Oh, he doesn't no. have the contained energy of, I mean, of I don't Johnny think Rotten. But... Johnny Rotten does a good job, personally. No? But 
Oh, yeah. Neither. No, he does. I mean, Fish. you can't deny their importance, but I don't really like the Sex Pistols. Oh. Never no, really but understood like, when it. you look at it performatively, it's just such a, a tremendous job he does, I think. No? Yeah. I was listening to God Save the Queen, yeah? Yeah. And, you know, God Save the Queen, a fascist regime. Well, that's quite strong. And then as he goes, God Save the Queen, we mean it, man. And like, I think no, he I'm, goes. We mean it, man. Yeah, he's yeah, 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 it all it's way so bad. Yeah, but he's no, he's but nah. he's being sarcastic, isn't he? Yeah, but uh, I don't because like when it. he's using man, and also you know one of the key tenets of of punkdom was the fact that you hated hippies. So if they're saying yeah. man, they're definitely yeah. Doing no, but that, it's so. just, uh, okay. But I don't know. I just don't think I don't. I don't like the sex because I don't no, think never mind the bollocks is good. But there's so many layers to it. We mean it, man. Because obviously a lot of people would see punk as, as I see in 20,000 student essays, first year student essays every year, punk is about authenticity and really meaning it. Yeah, but of yeah. course, yeah. already built into the founding text of punk is the idea that meaning it is the worst. inherently false. Like, yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. mean anything. So Vicious doesn't play anything on it, even though he's the emblem of punk. Yeah. So like punk is amazing because it's about being real, but being unreal is built into it from its foundations. And like makes it's just... it clear from day one, yeah. it's a performance for him. He's dressing up yeah. and acting out in a particular way to get a particular response from yeah. people and does it perfectly. And they were as constructive as a band as, as Take That or oh, yeah, yeah. Hearsay were, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> You're just a sinner. <laughs> no, I just don't like it musically. That's yeah, what it that's comes fair. down to. I mean, I'm not... Um, I don't really like punk generally. Yeah. Sorry. I said this on the when we talked about the dam, didn't I? Yeah, it's a shame because there's such a strong South London legacy to punk, mm. punk music hall, all the best <laughs> <laughs> music, <laughs> choral cantatas. Yeah. I mean, yeah, what aren't we doing? That's the prog, man. Let's talk about Robert Calvert next time. So, if you've enjoyed Stephen's views on music, there, <laughs> no, you can go back and listen to some other playlist episodes. I always enjoy them. So I don't know what that means for the general public. But there's 126 or 27 episodes to choose from. So if you wouldn't mind, please sign up for an Amazon Prime instant video trial as well, because we need the money. We mean it, man. 